Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening. Great show for you today. We're going to take a look into the world of arbitrage trading, one of the main ways that professional investors attempt to make money off mergers and acquisitions. And in the second part of the show, we're actually going to be talking about how to play some live deals for any of you out there listening who are interested in trying to invest in this world. So joining us in studio today are two experts and longtime professionals, Roy Barron and Mike Shannon of Westchester Capital Management. They manage the merger fund, a mutual fund, or really two funds that attempt to profit from the so-called spread between the announced price a company is going to pay for another when a deal uh, is in fact announced uh, or reported on in terms of its stock price and what that stock is actually trading at real time before the deal closes. If that sounds confusing, we'll get into it a little bit more uh, with these guys. This should capture the, basically the idea is it should capture the amount of risk uh, that a deal has before it closes. Uh, mainly the, the biggest one being regulatory interference these days, I'd say. Uh, WCM has approximately $5.5 billion in assets under management with over 400,000 investors worldwide. So Roy and Mike, thank you for joining Deal of the Week. Thank you for having us. So let's first explain what the merger fund is, uh, maybe more coherently than my brief explanation there, uh, and maybe a little bit about its history, because it might be confusing <clears throat> to some people that aren't as familiar with what arbitrage trading is. So what what is the merger fund? The merger fund is a publicly traded mutual fund that seeks to profit from the successful completion of publicly announced mergers, acquisitions, and other types of significant corporate reorganizations. And and how how do you do that? Maybe again, sort of more coherently than I briefly summed it up in in uh, uh, ten seconds. Well, you made a good start. the The strategy that we employ is called merger arbitrage, and the way that we are able to to exploit the discount between the price that a company is being purchased for and the trading price of the target company um, is by purchasing the target company after the deal is announced and to the extent that there is a stock for stock component of the deal we will make a short sale of the acquiring company's stock to the extent that it's a cash transaction such as a tender offer we will just buy shares of the target company which typically trade at a discount to the transaction price the discount is due to the time value of money, the risk that the transaction may be um, may be terminated, the any regulatory approvals that may be required, and other types of uncertainties. And how does this fit into uh, being a mutual fund? In other words, uh, so the way this works is that uh, institutional investors and retail investors are giving you guys money, and then you're choosing the deals with which to to use the strategy, and then somehow this trades on an index? No. Um, there's no index involved. It's it's the, the same type of vehicle as any other type of pooled capital vehicle. There are a number of, of investors that, that make an investment into the fund, and then Mike and I manage that pool of capital using the, the merger arbitrage strategy. We try to uh, manage a diversified portfolio of investments, which will contain a variety of, the, of these uh, publicly announced transactions, and with the hopes that each one will be successfully completed. And, and now you guys have two tickers, right? MERFX and MERIX, is that right? Those are two tickers for the same fund. One is the institutional class shares, the other is the retail class shares. Got it. What percentage of your money comes roughly from, from retail versus professional? Probably about two-thirds, one-thirds retail institutional. That sounds about right. And then what, there's like a 1% management fee or so that you guys take? That's correct. That's right. Okay. So roughly speaking, 
what are the sort of macro environmental forces about when the merger fund does well, when you guys sort of perform well versus when the the fund struggles? Uh, you know, are, is that fair to say? Are there certain macroeconomic conditions that that lend itself to good versus bad performance? Well, um, environments where there there are a large number of transactions announced are always good for us because it gives us a larger selection of deals to choose from. We invest in deals that have a high likelihood of closing. Certain deals are, are non-starters from the beginning. There may be there may be um, impenetrably high antitrust hurdles. There may be uh, other types of issues such as uh, financing that would be very difficult to obtain. There may be significant shareholders that would vote against the deal. And those types of transactions we would, tr we would tend to avoid. So what we try to do is select those that we think have the highest likelihood of being successfully completed uh, in a predictable manner. And, and predictable meaning as far as time frame, as far as, um, as the various requirements or conditions of the transaction. Uh, in this particular environment, it seems like we've had quite a few deals that have not happened. Do both mm -hmm. of you guys see this environment, therefore, as a more difficult time to do what you do? Well, it, it certainly has been a difficult time over the last couple of years, and I think a lot of the deals that um, haven't occurred haven't occurred for various reasons. And some of them, uh, a lot of them were somewhat predictable, whether it was uh, you know, Office Depot Staples, where you have an industry going from three players down to two, or you have Baker Hughes Halliburton, again, two very strong uh, companies in the oil services that were going to merge and require very, you know, a vast amount of divestitures. The market was pretty skeptical that deals like that would occur. So sometimes, you know, companies are uh, either forced into, you know, doing what you would call defensive deals. Their, their businesses are struggling. They need to merge. And, um, you know, sometimes they push the envelope a little bit too far. So we don't really see this as anything that's that's changed in particular. We've, you know, been doing this for 30 years. And, you know, there, are, you know, sometimes it happens that you go through a stretch where there's, you know, deals not happening for particular reasons. So I don't, I don't see it as anything uh, different. Why do you guys do this? Like, what, 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 what drew you to this? Sort of, what, what is the thrill behind what you do? Well, what kind of drew me to it? Well, for, first, what drew me to Wall Street was that you generally are dealing with different industries, and that's kind of fun. And merger arbitrage, you know, it, it's it's current events. We wake up in the morning, there's a large deal announced, and you're learning about, you know, industries that are dynamic, they're changing, why are these mergers happening? And, you know, one day it's an oil services deal, another day it's, a, you know, some type of high-tech deal, and you're learning about it. So, you know, for me at least, it drew me in because it was all different industries, all different companies, and it really never gets boring. Same for you, Roy? Agreed. You know, the stuff that we invest in are the kinds of things that you read about in the paper on a daily basis. It's a good, you know, it, it's sort of good cocktail party talk as well. When you see people and, and they ask what you do, um, and we say we, we invest in mergers and acquisitions, people say, oh, yeah, I have some shares of that, or what do you think is going to happen with Yahoo, or, or uh, you know, what about Dow DuPont? And it, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Here's the thing, though, for, for what you guys do, it seems like, how should I say this? It seems like if you're playing roulette, you can either bet on a number to hit and you can get a real big win, or you can bet on like sort of the boring red-black. And what you guys are doing is the latter. In other words, you're not, you're not betting on a company and saying, hope this one gets bought, you know, I'll make 30%. Instead, you're investing after a deal is announced and then 
making sort of the smaller return, although you can do long short, so maybe that isn't such a small return. Uh, but but you're 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 seemingly investing, given a set of information uh, that's sort of much more robust, and maybe mm. you're able to make better decisions, but it's far less speculative. Does that sort of take the joy out of it at all? Well, it, look when it, I when it, I play roulette, I just bet on the number. It's, no. a, it's a very good analogy, <laughs> that's, that's except good. I would I would say I agree with you that the strategy that involves not speculating on future transactions because that would eliminate the arbitrage component of it. But to continue the analogy, I would say if you include red and blue together, and we're betting on it, that's that's more akin to our investment. If green. If green turns zero. up, if right. zero turns up, right. then that would be the equivalent of a terminated transaction. That's right. And the odds of green happening are somewhere near the odds of, of a, a, a transaction that's publicly announced that we invest in being terminated. Yeah, it, I agree. That's a better analogy. It, it's almost like an insurance business. You know, we're taking on the closing risk of an announced deal, and we collect premium as these deals close occasionally. Somebody dies, or occasionally there's a big storm, and then you have to pay out that insurance premium. So sometimes, like the last year or two when you've had a lot of broken deals, it creates opportunities because then the spreads are a little bit wider. They offer a little bit better return because people see, well, you know, these deals don't always happen. And are you, inv- are, are you investing in only deals that have been sort of formally announced by the company? Or like, you know, if I break a story on Yahoo!, does that now go into your sort of your world as like, okay, that's one that we can invest on too? In other words, you use sort of reporter broken stories the same way you'd use a company press release. To the extent that we can quantify the likelihood of an event actually happening, then we will take a look at something like that. For example, if a company receives a hostile bid but hasn't signed a merger agreement, or if a company puts itself up for sale and three other companies have expressed an interest in it, that would certainly fall under our radar and we'll take a look at it. But we don't speculate as to, for example, consolidating sectors, or we, and we don't invest on rumor. There really needs to be hard information that there will be a, a hard catalyst. Yeah, if a company's put itself up for sale, and it's pretty clear that there's at least three or four interested bidders, sometimes that probability of a, there being a deal and a deal that closes may be higher than a deal that's actually been announced yet has regulatory issues. All right, so let's talk about some live deals. In fact, I'd like to talk about some deals that we have specifically talked about on previous episodes of this podcast. And you already brought up one, Yahoo, in the terms of a, you know what, what could be talked about in a cocktail party. Uh, so I'm curious to hear from you guys. Like, how are you investing in Yahoo? So the, the value of Yahoo is composed of its intrinsic businesses, the operating businesses, the website, the travel portal, the financial portal, et cetera, together with the investments that the company owns. Uh, it owns shares of Yahoo Japan and, most significantly, shares of Alibaba. The, it's, the shares of publicly traded companies that it owns far outweigh the value of the operating companies themselves. So if one were to take a position in Yahoo um, and... If, if one wanted to be to, to sort of eliminate or neutralize the directional exposure to, to, uh, to the markets in general, you would buy shares of Yahoo and sell short shares of Alibaba and to the extent that you want shares of Yahoo Japan. The reason why this falls within our investment mandate is because the company has, has publicly announced its intent to monetize uh, to monetize these investments, and now, and now that it ran into some some trouble with the the tax authorities, potentially, 
with regard to monetizing Alibaba, instead of selling its Alibaba stake, it's now selling its operating business. And as you know, as you can read from the papers, um, there, there are many companies interested in it. The latest, the latest uh, story out today is that Verizon has bid $3 billion. So we're not at the end of that process yet, but it, we're in the, the later stages of the quote-unquote auction process. Yeah, and, and as you've heard on this podcast uh, several times before, Verizon's probably the most likely to buy Yahoo, although I would say that that $3 billion number is probably likely to go up as we near the uh, finish line. We'll have to see. Of course, there are other components of Yahoo beyond its core business, like its patents and uh, potentially sure. even real estate that may drive that number oh, yeah. uh, e even higher uh, as we get to the finish line there. Uh, all right, so that's an interesting one. How about... Uh, uh, Dow DuPont, another big deal that we've discussed um, on this show before. How are you guys looking at that one in terms of regulatory risk? Well, I think we feel pretty comfortable on a, a regulatory risk perspective. I think there are, you know, obvious overlaps, but there are, you know, certainly uh, divestitures that can be made, and they're they're not substantial. There be willing buyers for that. Uh, this was announced as a merger of equals, not a very big premium paid, therefore not much downside. And in fact, there's, you know, uh, depending on the rumor of the day, who may or may not come in for either one of them, the spread has moved and inverted at various times. So it, we'd look at it as more of a, a trading position. I think right now there is no spread in that deal as, you know, there is thoughts that uh, if BASF gets uh, kind of locked out of the M&A game that they could be interested in perhaps DuPont or, or something. So it's more of a, a trading position we'd look at. Than is, it, is there a recent deal, uh, you know, fairly high profile deal that you guys sort of got wrong? Well, I, I would say we, we had a minor sized position in the Allergan transaction, uh, the proposed Allergan uh, purchase by, by Pfizer. Um, Pfizer had announced the deal in, during the atmosphere of intense scrutiny over corporate tax inversions, and we thought that their commitment uh, indicated that they were willing to take the risk of, of potential either legislation or rule changes. So we thought that Pfizer had done a lot of homework before announcing this transaction. Um, you know, they have a staff of, of, of accountants and, and attorneys and tax counsel, and they did a lot of work on this. And so the deal was announced, but I don't think anybody anticipated the extent to which the Treasury Department would push back against these types of transactions. So in the latest round of rulemaking, they dealt the knockout blow to this transaction uh, by issuing what, what, a th what amounts to a three-year look back for the purposes of, of accounting for the, the various sizes of the parties to the transaction. Yeah, you guys can go back and listen to that Pfizer Allergan episode we did where we talk about inversions <laughs> and sort of the details of this uh, particular Treasury ruling. I think that one caught a lot of people off guard. Another one I know that caught a lot of people off guard, including me as a reporter covering it, is, you know, in terms of at least my own opinion on what would happen, was Comcast, Time Warner Cable. Did you guys get that one right? We did not. We, we thought that the, the Comcast transaction would be approved by the FCC. Um, we, we thought that their focus on the provision of, of, of broadband services um, was extreme, and we were surprised, uh, in, including the council that we, that we consulted with prior to the deal, we were surprised that the deal was, was blocked. However, um, Charter came to the rescue, and since we were long uh, Time Warner and Charter came in, um, everything worked out okay. And that transaction itself was not without without worries, but ended up being successfully completed. And that one, uh, again, if you had sort of been following along, it was no surprise that Charter was there. I mean, it, That's it, correct. It was, Charter had made a hostile bid. Charter was very 
uh, uh, forward with his public statement saying, look, if this mm-hmm. thing falls apart, oh, yeah. we're going to buy it. Uh, so there was a nice sort of built-in safety net. I think, that's, that that's a good point. And that's one of the factors that we look at in, in, uh, in making investments. What is the downside for every transaction? How much do we stand to lose? And the fact that Charter was there helped buffer the, the negative mark-to-market when the, the transaction was actually blocked. Um, and then it allowed us to stay in the position and see it to completion with Charter. All right, how are you guys looking at uh, Monsanto Bayer, or Bayer, depending on how you pronounce it? Well, it's interesting. I think it's caught a lot of people off guard on the Bayer side, and you see that in the stock reaction. The stock's down 15 or 20%. Um, you know, it's somewhat thought that this is a, a, you know, this new CEO has come in with his new vision, but he's been with the company for a very long time, uh, you know, 20, 30 years or so. And I think right now the concern is that there's a, a bid-ask spread that may be too wide. Uh, you know, Bayer has kind of intimated that they're, they're not willing to, you know, pay up and you know I think people think Monsanto's worth at least 140 145 so it's you know they they may be a little bit far apart on the bid ass spread so uh, I think it remains to be seen it's interesting because that that comes in the wake of the Syngenta transaction and um, some people use the, use the Syngenta purchase as as a comparable valuation for Monsanto and if you were to use that uh, although they're two different companies and probably would command different multiples, if you were to use the same multiple, you'd probably have a price in the 120s, which would not be acceptable to Monsanto. One more live one I want to talk to you guys about, because this one's a bizarre one. What about Tribune Gannett? I, I, I don't have much to say on that. We, we, we've looked at it, and it appears that Tribune might have fought them off and that, that Gannett be in the, might be in the process of, of walking away. Uh, we we don't have a position in that, but although we are tracking it in the event that it turns into a friendly deal. Well, it's probably wise not to have a position in that one because it <laughs> certainly seems like Tribune is doing or Tronk as a, as as they're going to be called now, <laughs> right. um, has done uh, uh, quite a bit to try to push Gannett away. I know Gannett is at least thinking about walking away at this point. Although uh, surprisingly, and this is a new development for those of you who have been listening to these podcasts, Gannett did a little bit better uh, in terms of. Uh, Tribune shareholders withholding at the at the latest annual meeting. In mm-hmm. other words, basically voting uh, against the Tribune board. Uh, they got a lot more withhold votes than they expected to get, and that may uh, extend Gannett's uh, battle in pursuit of Tribune. We'll have to see. I, I, I'm curious just in terms of uh, sort of how you guys, uh, you know, think about arbitrage trading. Uh, is this something that uh, you feel like is a uh, defensive investment strategy? In other words, is this one of your safer uh, uh, strategies if you want to put money into it? Um, because you know you guys sort of know what you're doing and there's a lot of risk that's, that's sort of mitigated within the model? It, it depends how you practice the strategy. We practice a fairly conservative version of the strategy. It has a low correlation with the stock market in general. And, and rightly so, as you would think. If, if you're making an investment based upon the success or failure of a transaction, then you'll make money if the transaction is completed and you'll lose money if it's not, regardless of whether the market moves up or down or sideways during the pendency of the deal. So to that extent, it should be theoretically a market-neutral strategy. So our beta, our historic beta, has been about 0.15 to the market. We have a very low standard deviation. Standard deviation is about a quarter of that of, of the S&P. So people tend to use us almost as a, as a sleep well at night vehicle, as a diversification to their overall investment portfolio. 
how have you guys how have you guys seen the performance of your fund? I'm looking at it right now. It looks like you guys are, you know, roughly flat on the year, maybe down about five percent over the last two years. At least M E R F X is what I'm looking at on the Bloomberg terminal right now. Uh, I think year to date we're up one and a half. Maybe one and a half percent. percent. Yeah, yeah, tracking. You know, uh, in this interest rate environment, you know, three and a half to five percent is is what we'd expect. I think we're tracking about three and a half percent annualized right now, and then we have a, an event-driven fund, uh, WCEIX, uh, which has a broader mandate, can do merger arbitrage, but also other event strategies. And I think that's tracking, I don't know, I think that's up 1.8, 1.9%, which, you know, we would expect that to do anywhere from, you know, 5 to 7% a year. So it's kind of the, you know, return profile in this interest rate environment. I mean, and also, if you go back further, the, this the strategy is not meant to be traded in and out of. If you look at it at, from a much longer term perspective, um, it would not be subject to the to the swings of the market as much. So, if you look at a year like two thousand and eight, when the market was down thirty five percent, we were roughly flat. We were down about a percent or so. So, if you look at the fifteen year track record, uh, it it's it provides similar to equity-like returns with a fraction of the volatility. And that's really the investment uh, rationale for making making an investment in something like this. I speak with a lot of mm. uh, merger arbitrage traders uh, you know, on a daily basis with mm. my job of trying to break deals. Of course, they're <laughs> trying to get more information from me uh, in terms of what I know. But it's unusual for me to speak to sort of this mutual fund angle on it. Was there something about that that attracted you guys to the merger fund rather than just working at a hedge fund and doing this? Well, we have, I guess, approximately four hundred thousand investors, and you know, to provide this type—that's a lot. <laughs> to, yeah. So that, that's certainly nice to have. But you know, to provide the hedge fund strategy in a mutual fund format where you could provide daily liquidity, we thought was something that would be really attractive to to the investors. And so, you know, so far so good. Plus, you're opening it up to retail investors, which is really unusual. I mean, most that's retail great. investors don't do this. That's right. I, I think that that was sort of the attraction, and that's and that's why we are where we are today. Um, it, it's an in, a a institutional type of strategy within a mutual within a retail fund wrapper, um, and there are not many of those available. So when when institutional investors saw that they would be able to access this type of alternative investment in a liquid fashion that doesn't have quarterly lockups or gigantic minimums, um, not only did retail investors start to use it, but also asset allocators and investment advisors. And to be honest with you, the, you know something that we've seen recently, a lot of the interest that we've seen is from investors who look at it as a diversification or a hedge to their fixed income portfolio. Because if you own a portfolio of bonds and rates move up, the value of your bonds would move down. But in a rising interest rate environment, absolute return investments such as the merger fund and other, and other alternative investments should move up and provide a higher rate of return. Roy Barron and Mike Shannon of Westchester Capital Management, they manage the merger fund with about $5.5 billion in assets under management. Thank you guys both uh, for joining us on Deal of the Week. Thanks, Thank Alex. Thank you, Alex. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And please rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you next week. Mm-hmm.